series, Apologetics. And we've been talking um, uh, the last few weeks about the evidence for the presence of God, how we know God exists. And even the one before that, we looked about evil. We talked about how evil, even evil points to the existence of God. So it's all been about basically God and His existence. Today we're shifting gears. We're going to look at something uh, uh, different, but um, maybe even more important. I don't know. We'll see. We're going to be talking about the reliability of the New Testament. And I got some good news and I got some bad news for you. Which would you like first? The bad news. The bad news is this is going to be a long, in fact, the longest of our classes we've had thus far. That's the bad news. The good news is that I, I took 15 minutes out of it today. <laughs> so it's 15 minutes shorter than it would have been. So you can thank me for that. That's the good news. Now, actually, this, um, this, this talk was put together by me a few years ago as a series that I gave uh, uh, as a lecturer at uh, some apologetic conferences, and it was a two-part, two-hour presentation. First hour was the New Testament. The second hour was the Old Testament. So I'm just taking that first half, that one-hour New Testament, and uh, giving it to you. But I did take about 15 minutes out of it. So that's the good news. Uh, I'll try to keep you from falling asleep too much. If I see you not off, I will give you uh, grace even though I may embarrass you in calling your name. But, but other than that, don't, don't let it, uh, don't let, let it uh, concern you at all. Of course, as always, whoops, okay, it's not back there. That's all right. Um, you're uh, welcome to take all the notes you want, or you can send me an email to the email on the um, slide, and I will send you the notes for tonight. And the good news is, if you ask for these notes, you'll get the, the full version, not the edited version. Ta-da! You'll get the stuff that I didn't talk about. And uh, so if you do that, just say notes, and I'll send you notes. Slides, I'll send you slides. Say notes and slides, I'll send you notes and slides. And for those of you who are really ambitious, if you will ask in your email, you have to ask specifically, you won't get it, for the Old Testament version, I'll give you my notes on the Old Testament reliability. You can have those too. They're all done. So... If you don't ask for it, you won't get it. If you just say notes, you're going to get the notes for tonight. Okay, let's begin. Um, as always, we'll start with uh, reading a scripture. I'll be reading from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. As the Apostle Paul, writing to his protege, the young Timothy, uh, writing right near the end of Paul's life, right near the, the end of his life. He writes this. He says, all Scripture is inspired by God. Some translations say breathed by God or God breathed. And is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Well, from these passages, you can see how important it is to know the Bible. This is what it's all about. It's important that we understand. In fact, the Christian faith itself depends upon the validity of Scripture. It does. It really does. But how do we know? How do we know that the Bible once contained the truth at all? How do we know? How do we know that if that truth was there, that it's still there? 
today. Well, that's the crux of what we want to talk about this evening. So I have a question, just one question for you tonight that you have to answer. The rest of the time, you just got to sit back and listen. One question. How would you respond if someone asked you to prove to them that the Bible is reliable, that you can trust it as the truth? What would you say? And Peggy can't answer. She's got my notes. Prove to me you can't. You don't have to. I don't have to prove you you can't. I'm the one. Who, you're the one who wants to convince me to be a believer. So I don't need to be a believer. And if you can't, you can't show me it's true, then it's on you. Well, I don't have to. I don't even care if it's true. I read. I read about. I read the sayings of Buddha. I read the sayings of Buddha, and Buddha's pretty neat in my mind. So I don't care about your about your Bible stuff. It's a bunch of errors. You know, did you know, you know this Bible you think is so great? The New Testament alone has, has 200,000 errors in it. Just so you know. Just so you know. So what else? Who else wants to take a stab? No, Peggy, you can't answer. Who else wants to take a stab? <laughs> well, historically, the church has held to this principle of inerrancy as the uh, basis for the truth of the Bible. And it's very important that we understand what inerrancy is. Um, inerrancy can be, can be defined as simply, it's just the Bible's inspired Word of God, and that is in its uh, original manuscripts, it's free from error. So when it was written, it was written by the power of God, using human authors, and in its original manuscript, did not have any errors in it. That's inerrancy. And that's been the foundation of the um, Christian faith from the very beginning. Look at um, this quote from Clement of Rome. He was a, a church leader in one of the churches in, uh, in Rome during the first century, the, last for, the latter part of the first century. And he wrote this quote about the time that um, uh, the Apostle John was writing his uh, gospel. Uh, uh, Clement of Rome was writing his letters. And this is what he said. He says, the Holy Scriptures, which were given through the Holy Spirit, nothing innocuous, or falsified is written therein. Wow. I'm going to tell you, not very many people believe that today. Did you know that? Not very many people. In fact, there's a survey done within a large evangelical seminary. Now, these are people studying to be pastors, right, in a seminary. And it's evangelical. I mean, it's supposed to be Bible-based. They did a survey. 85% of the seminary students did not believe the Scripture was inerrant. They didn't believe it. Wow. There's a study done by Pew Research several years ago, and it showed that only about a third of Americans believe that any Scripture, not just the Bible, but even the teachings of Buddha, any Scripture of any kind should be interpreted literally. Just shouldn't interpret it literally. You don't get some ideas from it, but don't need to interpret it literally. So here's the truth. Most people, now catch this, even Christians today in this country, don't believe the Bible is without error. So it can't be trusted as the only source with teachings about God and faith. Most Christians do not believe that. Very few Christians really believe that. Wow, isn't that something? So we say that Scripture is uh, without error. Of course, as I said, we, we're, we're saying it contains no errors in the original manuscripts in which it was written. 
problem that critics point to is, ah, sorry, but you don't have any original manuscripts. They don't exist. Duh. So you cannot have truth in your Bible. You don't even know what it said originally. You don't have any of those. Even if, even if, even if you, you knew it was, uh, was true, uh, uh, it's possible that it, it could have been changed sometime over the last 2,000 years. Why wouldn't it be changed? I mean, a lot of people make a lot of copies over these, uh, these, these years. Besides, didn't the church, didn't it really intentionally leave certain gospels out because it didn't like what they said? Yeah, didn't it do that? Mm. How could you trust it then? And you know, there's tens of thousands of errors in the New Testament alone. Surely you can't trust this New Testament and its story. See, the truth is, all of these questions are being asked today by doubters of the Bible and by Christians as well. These same questions are being asked today. And they appear on the surface to be valid, right? Could you tell me that there's not thousands of errors in the New Testament? If I quote you from a, from a, uh, uh, a liberal source that says it is, they counted them, how would you respond to that? Probably couldn't. We're going to talk about that this evening. The real truth is, when you peel back this onion and take a look at these objections, you can easily refute them. They don't hold merit. Not, on the, not when you look closely. So regardless of, of, of these questions, our task then becomes to present the evidence that proves the validity of the Bible as we have it today. And the good news is, we can do that with absolute confidence. We can. God has preserved His Word, and the evidence will substantiate that He has. And our task is to learn how to do that, how to address each of these challenges with real facts. And we have, we have history and all kinds of archaeological evidence on our side. So we're going to do that tonight. We're going to go through and learn a lot about the Bible, especially the New Testament, and how we can refute these things. If we fail, if we fail to present the truth about the validity of Scripture, then for non-believers, we give them the reason to ask the question, why should I believe the Bible over any other religious writing, including on things like the Quran? Why? If you can't show me you're right, then why can't I believe Buddha instead? We have an obligation to be able to defend the truth of our Scripture because it's the foundation where our faith is. It comes from that. Four major reasons that people give why they don't believe the Bible is without error. One, they say it's full of myths and stories. Two, it's historically inaccurate. They say it's full of textual errors, that 200,000 I mentioned earlier, and it's been corrupted by people over the years. And, and while it may have some great teachings, so does Buddha and a bunch of other people too. So before we're done this evening, you will be able to address every single one of those objections, hopefully. If I've done my job, you'll be able to. So, once we've proven the Bible's reliability, and I think you'll see that it's the most reliable of any of the ancient writings, 
then we can see how its contents then were what? Worthy of consideration. This is my daughter. Huh. <laughs> I say, hello, hi, how are you doing? No, never mind. So here's the thing. We're gonna, we, want to, we want to know that the Bible is really worthy to consider it as being what? The Word of God and what we need to follow in faith and in practice, how we live out our life. So we've got to know it's true. So much so that we then can show that to others as well. So the starting point for addressing the validity of the Bible is a look at the New Testament. So we're going to take a look at the New Testament for the rest of the time we have here this evening. It's important because if we can uh, overcome the questions about the New Testament, then we can use the New Testament as additional proof for the validity of the Old Testament. That's right. Because the New Testament is so dependent upon the Old Testament for its essential doctrines. They go together. There's about 300 Old Testament quotes in, uh, uh, from, from the 18 of the original 22 Hebrew Scripture books in the New Testament. You'll see about 300 of those New Testament. And then when you put that together with uh, uh, other references from the New Testament, we can, we can say that the Old Testament, or the Old Testament, we can say that the Old Testament makes up about 10%, maybe a little more than 10% of the New Testament, straight out of the Old Testament. So it's important. Jesus quoted from the Old Testament a lot. He referenced it a lot. He verified it a lot. And the New Testament and its message uh, becomes essential text for building the foundation of uh, our Christian faith. So unless we can prove the New Testament is valid, then the gospel has little validity, and neither does Christianity, at least not as a source, as the only way to God. And that's why it's important that we're able to do that. In the end, I think we're going to find that we need the New Testament in order to give validity and purpose to the Old Testament. You need it. You need the New Testament to give validity and purpose to the Old Testament. And you need the Old Testament to give fullness of meaning to the New Testament. They both need to be valid. And we need to be able to understand how they, uh, what makes them valid. Okay, two questions we have, to, uh, we have to address in order to show or prove that there's validity and reliability to the New Testament. First of all, is the New Testament that we have an accurate copy of the original New Testament writings. In other words, when I open up and read, is this accurate based upon what the original said? Has that, has that transmission of that truth occurred? The second question we have to answer, well, does it contain the actual truth? In other words, when the original was written, was it truthful? Was it truthful? So was it truthful when it was written? And has that truth been carried accurately to us today? Got to address those two things in order to show that the New Testament is reliable. And we'll start, first of all, by looking at how the New Testament came into existence. This is a really, really crash course, a quick course in how the canon was established. We're going to go through it real quickly, just, to, just the highlights. Some people actually believe that um, uh, the New Testament came about uh, in the... Um, uh, 1500s, because they called a council together, and then they all got in and voted and says, okay, we'll vote these in and vote those out. 
Not true. Never happened. Not how it happened. The truth is that no single council ever decided what books should be put in or thrown out. The 27 books that we have in the New Testament were not decided by a council, but by individual churches and church leaders over the first 300 years of the church. It was a gradual process, and that's a very important process. The goal was not to remove anything. In fact, it was much more the case that the church worked hard to not add anything, not add a book, until they were absolutely certain that it represented Scripture. The closest any council ever came, any that ever came to uh, deciding on the New Testament was the Council of Carthage in A.D. 397. And it didn't make that decision per se. And what it did was to officially uh, recognize what the individual churches and church leaders had already decided. It was just to get a consensus of all of them together. It didn't make the decision. It just confirmed what was already done. In fact, the, um, every one of the 27 books of the New Testament had been recognized by one or more of the major church leaders by AD 170. That's pretty early. That's pretty quick. Now, they, they weren't all recognized, not all 27 books recognized by every one, but all 27 books that ended up in the New Testament, the major, one or more of the major church leaders had already recognized it as, as, as Scripture. It's very important because it means that many of the so-called other Gospels were never recognized by the early church fathers. So they couldn't be considered uh, they, the, uh, to, uh, uh, to either be erroneous or, most likely, they were written much later than A.D. 170. Most of the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, those, uh, those came out later. They're late uh, second century into third century uh, uh, date. So that's important. And except for the books that are found in the Old Testament, only the 27 books included in the New Testament were ever quoted by the early church fathers. They never quoted anything other than what eventually became known as the New Testament and the Old Testament, of course. So, the church early on guarded very closely what it considered to be the inspired Word of God. But it also freely taught from what it believed to be the inspired Word of God. We'll see how that comes into play in a little bit. So, the years between this time, A.D. 170, and the Council of Carthage, served then as a proving ground for the validity of these 27 books. They quoted from them, they read them, they talked about them over this time period. So then they finally got together and says, okay, let's just make it official. This is going to be the New Testament. And they did in A.D. 397. Here's the thing. There was never any New Testament book, none, that was ever recognized by a church leader and then later rejected. You know that? None were ever recognized and rejected. Never happened. Not one. Nary a one, as my granddad would say. Recognition was, was, a, a, was a progression of addition, not a process of evaluation, inclusion, and then throwing it out. They didn't do it that way. Just the opposite. They were very, 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 very careful to not even consider it as Scripture until they were absolutely certain that's where it belonged. And that's true. And you can't stress this too much. This, this, this is very important. 
Because this process, for such careful scrutiny of the writings, it's significantly more likely that false teachings were always excluded. That's good. They were left out. Never had a chance to get in. That's God at work. They were extremely cautious. They refused to recognize something as Scripture until it was absolutely confident that it actually was. So, there's this direct link here or tie between the, the eyewitnesses who reported the events and passed them on both orally and in writing to the immediate post-apostolic leaders of the churches who in turn what? They worked to accurately copy and distribute this truth to those who followed them and then so on and so on and so on till today. And, much to your chagrin maybe, King James Version wasn't the last good version of the Bible. It's still being made better. Yeah. The church always worked to preserve God's word and to pass it on. And we see this process begin with the Apostle Paul. Right off the bat, in his letter to the Colossians, recording Colossians 4.16, look what he says. He says, and when this letter, the letter he had written, when this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And, when, and see that you also read the letter from the Laodiceans. In other words, we're, sending, we're signing this letter, you read it, you pass it on. And they've got a letter, they read it, they pass it on to you. And we're going to pass these letters around. That's how we're going to do it. And that's the process. That's how it began from the very beginning. Ha, but the question still remains. How can we be sure that even in the early church fathers were ensured correctly that God's word was included? How do we know it wasn't corrupted over 2,000 years? Hmm. Well, there's four reasons why we can have confidence that what we've got represents the truth that has been passed down to us accurately. One, we have earlier manuscripts. I'll talk about that in a minute. We have more manuscripts. We have more accurately copied manuscripts. And we got more abundantly supported manuscripts. All of these are very important. We'll break them down. The first, earlier manuscripts. And what I mean, this is a manuscript that's closer to the, the time that the original was written. So you have the original Let's say the Gospel of John in AD 90s, and then you have a, the, the, the oldest manuscript that we have of the Gospel of John. What is that time difference between them? That's what we're talking about, having the earliest manuscripts. We have by far the earliest manuscripts than any other ancient writings in the history of humanity, by far. Take a look at something. We have at least two partial manuscripts that we have, physical copies of them, that are dated within 30 years of the original. Nothing like that. One is a copy, a fragment, a piece of the Gospel of John found in, in Egypt um, that uh, we, we know was written somewhere between 122 and 125 A.D. We also have a copy of the Gospel of Mark that we know was written. Now, it's not the full copy, it's just a, a, a part of it, uh, that was written in the late first century, 80s, 80s, 90s. So we know that the Gospel of Mark 
was written even course earlier than that. But that's within 30 years. Within 30 years of what the original would have been. That's really close. We also have a lot of copies of manuscripts that date within 100 years of the originals. One of the most famous is this uh, uh, Betty Papyrus, which, is, which uh, dates to AD 180, and it contains the complete writings of Paul. Everything that Paul wrote is in there, in those manuscripts. We have um, even a document from the Dead Sea Scrolls, believe it or not, that date about to the first century that scholars believe could be a piece, a little fragment of the Gospel of, of Mark. Don't know that for sure. It's a guess because it's written in Greek, and it's very small, and it just, the words is a phrase that sounds like it's, it's out of the Gospel of Mark. But it, the dating is right. And, and in addition to that other piece that we found of the Gospel of Mark, the, the dates line up pretty well. So it's, it's pretty good. That, that could very well be a copy of the Gospel of Mark. We have hundreds of manuscripts that are less than 300 years old. Most uh, important of these is the uh, Codex uh, Sinaiticus. It dates from about AD 350. contains half of the Old Testament, the entire 27 books of the New Testament, manuscripts that, uh, that we have. That's good. So all the evidence makes it pretty likely that the original manuscripts were all written during the first century. Not much later, not somebody just wrote back and sort of pretended that they, were, they came from the, from the uh, uh, first century uh, apostles. No. First century. And we have pretty, pretty likely that it records everything accurately as well. There's no other ancient writing that comes even close to that. Let's take a look at a few. This might surprise you. The writings of Homer. Who knows who Homer is? The Greek uh, novelist. Ili Iliad and the Odyssey. Anybody read either one of those? The Iliad and the Odyssey? I saw, I saw the movies, so it counts, right? No, I've read, I've read them too. But you've read them. I've read them. Did you know that the, the, the oldest copy that we have of any of Homer's writings or 500 years after his death. The 500-year gap in there. Ah, the writings of Caesar, Julius Caesar, right? Thousand years. We have no manuscripts less than a thousand years from his, from his, from his death. The great Greek philosopher Plato, 1,200 years. Greek philosopher Aristotle, 1,400 years. Yet no one doubts the accuracy of anything that they said. Nobody questions it. Oh, yeah, yeah, this is, well, <laughs> we, we've got documents for the New Testament that are 30 years or 100 years, and people still doubt it. Surprising, isn't it? We have more ancient manuscripts of the New Testament compared to any other historical writings. We've got over 24,000 manuscripts, old manuscripts, of the New Testament, written in various languages. About 5,600 to 5,700, depending upon how you count the little fragments, are handwritten from the Greek itself. We've got a lot of, we've got a lot of Latin and, and Syriac, some really good old Syriac uh, translations of the New Testament that go way back. 24,000. Homer. We only have 643 copies of any of the writings of Homer, of ancient manuscripts from it. That's it. 
Counts of Caesar, Caesar, 10. Plato, the great philosopher, 7. That's all I got. 24,000 verses 7. We also have more accurately copied manuscripts. The best that we can do is, is Homer's Iliad. Believe it or not, the, the manuscripts we have of Homer, or of the Iliad, if you put them together and compare them, they come up to be about 95% in agreement. That is better than anything else outside the Bible. That's really good. Everything else just falls way, way off. But the Bible, the New Testament, if you evaluate it right, depending upon how you, which, which of the Greek, handwritten Greek manuscripts you include and which ones you don't, we can, uh, uh, we're, uh, we're somewhere between 97 and 99.5% accurate with all these manuscripts that we have. That's tremendous. You be conservative. Say 97. That's unbelievable. But there's so many. Now, what about that comment I made, Darla? 200,000 errors that you couldn't answer. You tell me I had to prove, had to prove them. Ha, ha, ha. Well, I'm about to prove them. Actually, there's not 200,000 errors. That's just what people, critics want to, it's the line they want to give you. But there are a lot of things that are different within the various copies of the manuscripts. The majority of these differences falls into three categories. Category one, misspellings. You take a look at all the Greek manuscripts, and you go through, and you look at them, you'll see they're written by people. There's this word, there's the same word here, but it's misspelled from where it is in a different manuscript. And usually when they made a, a mistake in the spelling of a word, they made the same one all the way through the whole time. They just kept making the same mistake. Well, critics count those all as errors. And so there's a lot of them. That's number one. The second biggest so-called error in the New Testament has to do with the use of the Greek words for us and we. Now, you say, well, why would that be? Why would there be some differences there? Well, you see, the two words in Greek are, look differently. They're not the same when you see them written out. But when you hear them spoken, guess what? They're almost the same. So back in the day, since they didn't have a, a copy machine to run and make copies, they had to copy everything by hand, and they wanted, the church was growing, and they wanted to get sure they get all these copies out there. So what they would do is a chief reader of the Greek manuscript would sit up front, and there would be 40, 50, 60 scribes sitting out in front of them, and he'd read, boom, 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 and they would scribe it down, boom, 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 boom. Well, the problem is that some of those out there who were listening had hearing as bad as mine. So when the reader would say, we, they heard us. And so they put us in there. And that's the second biggest uh, so-called error that you find in the New Testament. The third has to do with intentional uh, insertions by scribes. In other words, I pull out, the pastor doesn't like notes in his Bible. He said, I love notes in my Bible. They're all over the place. Well, the, the ancient scribes loved notes in their Bible too. And so they'd write all these things in the margin about what they're reading. And at some point later on, some other scribe who's making a copy 
we look at that. Oh, they must intend for that to go in there. And so they would take the notes on the side and just write them in. Thinking that's, that's intended to be there. But the good point, or, or the good about that is that they're easy to determine. Because why? We have so many manuscripts dated for all, over all these years. They can look at this. Scholars can look at this. And then they just look at an older manuscript. It's not there. So it, it doesn't belong there. This has to come out. In fact, there's been cases where they've looked at the older manuscript and actually seen the notes on the margins over here. They said, aha, that's where they came from. So we can eliminate those almost to, the, to uh, uh, perfect, almost perfectly. So those three big things which comprise most of the problems that we have, these so-called errors in the New Testament, are easily taken care of and have been taken care of through a process called textual criticism. And um, in fact, scholars now can take the New Testament, so-called errors, and they can take it down to where there's only 400 words in the entire New Testament that's in question. That's it. 400 words. Not one of those words has anything to do with doctrine or the historical content of Scripture. They're meaningless in the sense of, 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 of questioning the validity of our, uh, of our Bible. That's really good news. That's really good news. So, no matter how you view the various translations of the Bible that you may be using, we can have extreme confidence that it represents the truth, the original truth. So, last thing I want to talk about the abundance of support, abundantly supported manuscripts, because this is important. I stated earlier that the early church fathers frequently quoted from the New Testament thousands of times. I'll tell you that, thousands of times. So many so that we can take from the early church fathers, first couple hundred years of the church, their writings, their teachings, look at them, take out from that, and, come, and, and put together almost 50%, almost half, 46% to be exact, of the entire New Testament just from their quotes. That's pretty good. So even if we didn't have any manuscripts, the just and importance of the New Testament message is preserved. We have it. Wow. Man. And here's the thing. There are no quotes from any non-biblical sources by the early church fathers. They didn't quote from any of them. Any of those other books, they didn't quote from them. That's good news. So, we've, we've presented, I think, evidence, substantial evidence that the New Testament that we have today has been preserved. But that doesn't mean what is preserved represents the truth. Just like the Iliad. It's really not necessarily a true story. So, we may have 90% accuracy in what is preserved, but it doesn't mean what's preserved is the truth. So that's the next thing that we have to address. So we've got to take a look at some, some of the great proofs for the accuracy of the content of the New Testament. So I'm going to look at just four major factors that point to the accuracy of the original manuscripts. Let's take a look at them. One is the shortness of time between event and written account, uh, written by eyewitnesses or their contemporaries, 
uh, collaboration by non-biblical writers and sources and uh, uh, archaeological evidence. Archaeological evidence. Start one at a time. Take a look at the, uh, uh, the fact that the New Testament was written very soon after the occurrence of the events. Now, remember, we already talked about the manuscripts. The oldest manuscript we have and the time gap between it and the time the, the manuscript, original manuscript, was written. Now we're talking about the time between the first manuscript and the actual event, historical event. That's important, too. And the Bible, that time between, the, or at least the New Testament, that time between the first manuscript and the time the event occurred is very short. In fact, depending on which book of the Bible, those 27 books of the New Testament, somewhere um, uh, between 25 and 65 years is the time frame between the events and the original manuscript. That's remarkable. Considering during that time, what? Most things were passed down orally, not written. That's amazing, that time frame. It also means that that material was presented in writing during the time that most of the people that the story was about were alive. And also, who could refute it if it's not accurate? Or other historians, and there were several very good ones during the first century A.D. They could have refuted it. But they didn't. Just the opposite. They collaborated most of the significant events that's in the New Testament. That's amazing. Well, let me give you some ideas of, of some of those first century writers. Tacitus, Talus, Josephus, they all were historians. They could have all said, wait a minute, what these Christians are writing is just a bunch of bull, a bunch of garbage. It's not true. Well, they didn't. Just the opposite. We'll see that in a minute. So there's, there's no evidence to support that the accuracy of the gospel accounts in its essence and meaning is contained um, uh, 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 elsewhere. There is evidence to support contained elsewhere, and we can look no further than the writings of Paul. Never sell Paul short. Amazing man. And his writings are amazing. You realize that the, uh, the majority of Paul's writings, at least in the significant ones, some of the very significant ones, are never questioned in their authenticity. Even critical scholars, those who, who, who don't believe the Christian story, don't even believe the Bible, they believe in, that Paul wrote several of the books that he wrote. And they, and they stand with that. We'll see that next week when we talk about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians is one of the most important ones. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you've not read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you need to read that every month or so. That's an amazing chapter in the book. It's one of my favorites. It has so much theological information. The message of the, of the gospel is all there. 1 Corinthians 15 attests to the existence of Jesus as a person. He really existed. He was the Messiah of the Old Testament, and he was resurrected from the dead. That's the gospel message right there. Much more, too, you find in, in 1 Corinthians 15. Remember, nobody doubts the validity of 1 Corinthians. And the um, New Testament is quoted numerous times elsewhere in the first century and the second, early second century by people, by uh, uh, writings such as the Didache, one of the earliest teachings we have about how to do church, very early. 
and the Clement of Rome in his letter to the Corinthians, the works of Ignatius, his seven letters, and the writings of Polycarp. Here's the interesting thing. Paul cites, at least most scholars believe, or some scholars believe, he cites Paul's or Luke's gospel in one of his letters. 1 Timothy 5.18 is believed to be sourced from Luke 10.7. If that's true, and it probably is, that means what? That means Luke wrote his gospel before Paul was executed in the late 70s, or late 60s, 66, 67, 80s, somewhere now. So, second um, major factor that substantiates the contents of the New Testament is the fact that it's written by eyewitnesses or their contemporaries. Let's talk about that. This is very important. It's one of the most important criteria for being considered to be part of Scripture was to be written by an eyewitness or someone who got the information from an eyewitness. In fact, it was so important that several books, such as the book of Hebrews and the book of 3 John, were the, one of the last books to be included as Scripture because they didn't mention an author, didn't say who wrote it. And the church, early church fathers were a little leery about that. So that's true. Okay. Of the 27 books of the New Testament, only two, only two, the Gospels of Mark and Luke were written by people who did not personally witness the events recorded. Do you know that? Only two of the 27 were not written by people who witnessed the events. The Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Mark. The book of Acts was partially witnessed by its author, Luke. If you read the, the book of Acts, you can see in there by the language when it shifts to when Luke is talking about something he witnessed versus sometime things that took place that he, where he was not there. Clearly point that out. Almost half the book of Acts was personally witnessed by, by, uh, by Luke. That's amazing. And in both cases, Mark and Luke, who were not eyewitnesses, they didn't see the things they recorded in their Gospels. They received their information directly by those who did witness the events. So they're passing on firsthand information. Very important. Okay, third major factor, substantiating the contents of the New Testament is the fact that several of these key facts contained within it are collaborated by non-biblical sources. That's very important. Most of these were, were sources that were hostile to the Christian movement. They didn't like Christians. In some cases, they persecuted Christians. But the writing substantiated the content of the New Testament. Let's take a look at some of them. Josephus, first century uh, a Jewish historian, he wrote about Jesus and Jesus being believed to be the Messiah. He talked about Jesus being crucified. He talked about Jesus' brother James. He talked about John the Baptist. He talked about Pilate, Herod the Great, and many others within the New Testament. Tacitus, a, um, a Roman historian from the first century, he talks about Jesus and Jesus' followers. He talked about Pilate. He talked about Nero's persecution. Talus, another first century Roman historian, 
He talks about Jesus, Jesus' crucifixion. Boy, I can't talk. Jesus' Jesus' crucifixion and the fact what? That it was darkness. The sky grew dark at his death. Wow. The Lucian, who's a Greek satirist, he talked about Christians who were worshiping their crucified Messiah. And they lived as brothers. He talked about uh, uh, Christians, they worship this Christ like, like a God, like as if he is God. And they meet regularly on this special day of the week, and, and they were very devoted to their faith and willingness to, willing to die for their beliefs. And then there's the Jewish Talmud. Jewish Talmud is the definitive summation or collection of rabbinic writings. I read a good portion, not all of the Talmud, but pieces of it. And, um, but look what it attests to. It talks about Jesus. Real, real person. He was crucified, that he had a brother named James, and many other things out of the New Testament that's in the Jewish Talmud. So all these things, these non-biblical uh, sources point to the storyline and the beliefs of early Christians that's contained in the New Testament. And lastly, I want to take a look at archaeological evidence. Here's some examples. Uh, the Caiaphas Orchery. Discovered in 1990, what an orchery is? It's a bone box. Back in the first century, you know, if you would you would die. They would uh, sort of put you in a in a tomb, a temporary place, until all the flesh was gone, about a year. And then they come in and get your bones and they stack them all up and put them in this little box. Well, there is an orchery that has high uh, uh, high priest uh, Caiaphas uh, on it, so that shows that he was a real person. The uh, uh, Sergius Paulus inscription found in 1912. It contains the name of L. Sigaris Paulus, the Roman governor of Cyprus, named where? Acts chapter 13. And then you got the Galileo inscription. It tells the story about how Paul, this man named Paul, was brought before uh, Galileo, the proconsular of Acadia. And the inscription states that Galileo refused to intervene because the law involved, as far as he was concerned, is Jewish law. Well, just read Acts 18. You see that story in the New Testament. It's on that stone. And then you have the Pilate stone, found in uh, 1969, and it's attributed to, in other words, Pilate himself had the stone made. And uh, it mentions him by name. So we know Pilate was a a real person, he was, and he lived during a, a certain period of time that coincides with the New Testament. You know, one time, the book of Acts was considered to be highly inaccurate by most scholars, non-Christian non, non scholars, back in the early uh, 20th century. Because all the places and things that it talks about, there was no record of it. So it's just a bunch of made-up stuff. Interesting. The last 50, 60, maybe 70 years, the archaeological discoveries have proven that Acts is one of the most accurate historical books in the history of humanity. Did you know that? Extremely accurate. It names 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands without error. All right. So accurate is it 
that Roman historian A.N. Sherman White said this. It says, for Acts, the confirmation of historicity is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject its basic historicity must now appear absurd. Roman historians have long taken it for granted. He goes on at another place, the same historian, and says, the book of Acts is the most accurate and complete record of Roman history to be found. Wow, that's pretty powerful. All of these factors, when you take them into consideration, point to the accuracy and the factual reliability of the New Testament, don't they? And we've got to use this evidence. We do, to overcome the objections to the validity of our New Testament. And by doing so, transfer this work from being just literature and good stories to the ultimate tool to prove the claims of the Christian faith. Because that's what it is. And since we have so much evidence that points to the validity of the New Testament, we can conclude that what it contains is, in fact, fact. An accurate picture of God's revelation written and inspired by the Holy Spirit through godly people who through the power of the Holy Spirit have passed that truth down to us today. Therefore, what it contains about Jesus and the gospel is true. It's true. So here's the thing. If it's true, then if it says Jesus said something, Jesus said it. If it says Jesus did something, He did it. The truth of the Christian faith can be and is fully verified through the New Testament. Jesus and His disciples and the early church fathers continually quoted from what we know from the New Testament over and over again, and also from the Old Testament. See, throughout the entire New Testament, the Old Testament is used as a proof that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy concerning the Messiah written about in the Old Testament. Over and over that proof is there. And Jesus himself made the same thing. So here's the truth. You cannot separate the validity of Jesus as the Son of God from the validity of the Bible. They go together. You must believe them both or neither. But the facts point to both. And that's the good news. So it's clear. What we know as the Bible is the Word of God passed down through the ages by the providence of God. We can trust it. It's the final authority for faith and practice. It's absolutely consistent. There is absolute consistency between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and absolute coherence within both and between both. No other faith system or religion can say that, not one. I have read pieces of every single scripture from every single known religion on earth. I've read part of it. I've had to interact with it. One of my courses in my doctoral program, I had to read all, as I studied all these religions, I had to read their scripture. And I had to write us an interaction with it. When you look at that, there is nothing like the Bible. Nothing. No comparison. Nothing that shows its truth and its historical relevance. It's real. It's there. So, what difference does it make? Why should, why should we really care? What do you think?
Absolutely. Absolutely. And why do we want them to, mo- to know that it's, that it's right? Hey, there you go. Christ has given us a mission, has he not? He didn't ask, you know, if, you're, if you don't have anything to do today, you mind, you know, kind of telling somebody about Jesus? It's not what he said. He commanded us to go out into the world and tell the world about me, he says, baptizing them in the name, teaching them all that I've taught you, starting here and throughout the entire world. That is the mission that we have been commanded to do. The power for that mission comes from the Holy Spirit. Make no mistake about it. The power for that mission comes from the Holy Spirit. But the truth of the content of that mission is found only in the Bible. That makes the Bible and understanding it and being able to prove it being true absolutely essential. We have to defend this truth with every means possible. I'm going to close by reading a passage from Hebrew chapter 4, verse 12. And I'm going to focus on just the end of that passage. It says, the judge, this is the word, the Bible, is the judge of the ideas and the thoughts of the heart. Got that? I'm going to read that again. Let that soak in. The Word of God is the judge of the ideas and the thoughts of the heart. How can it do that? Because it's the only complete, accurate, coherent story of God and God's plan of redeeming humanity ever to be written. It's a complete, 100, finished story. And we're playing a part of it today. That's the truth. Thanks for letting me share with you. I didn't run too much over. A few minutes past my my 45. Next week, next week, we're going to look at the proofs of the resurrection. It won't be as dry as tonight. And it is, though, without doubt, the most important thing we will have discussed in these six weeks. So be sure you come. Bring your family. Bring your friends. Bring your enemies. Bring anybody you can think of because this, this um, uh, uh, next lesson in and of itself has proven to be uh, 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 one of the most effective tools in bringing, bringing people to Christ in and of itself. Just the story of the resurrection and how we know it's true. That's powerful when people hear that. Sometimes you can just take that message out to, a, to someone who doesn't believe And just that message alone, you can win them to Christ, no matter if they're atheist or whatever. It's a powerful tool. So I want to encourage you to be here to be a part of that. Final thoughts, questions? Throw a lot of stuff at you. Be sure to ask uh, for the notes if you want them. If you want the Old Testament version of this, rather than listen to me give you a boring lecture on it, you can just ask for the notes and you'll got it. Final questions? What's next on the agenda? We take an offering.